my wife does not know that I'm doing this this morning, uh, so I am glad that I am up here and she's down there. Um, but let's say that Kathy and I have invited you to stay with us for a few days in our home. You drive up and we help you unload your bags and take them to the room you will staying in. And you notice that the house is clean and well-kept and that your room is also very well-kept and it is clean and inviting. All right? And uh, we don't charge much for that room, just to let you know. But, um, but as you uh, walk into your room, you notice the door on the other room just across the hallway, my wife is already shaking her head, is open. Okay, you also notice that the room is not quite in the same condition as the one that you're getting ready to sleep in. All right? So who's having me for lunch today? <laughs> All right? Um, and it's in disarray. It has some old dusty furniture in it. It's sickly looking mattress leaning up against other clutter. And there is so much in the room that you can barely walk into it. Then the thought crosses your mind. I wonder what my room looked like a couple days ago. Your mind wonders, uh, wonders if, it may, if, if maybe the clean, organized room that you see and that you just saw that is your room was the same way that this room was just a couple of days ago. However, if those thoughts were to cross your mind, and I'm sure they would not in any stretch of the imagination, uh, you would be very, very wrong because you wouldn't have known that we as a family are in transition. We're in transition. You see, we are in the process of finishing our upstairs. Where do you think all that stuff was before we started finishing our upstairs? Upstairs. And so as we are in the process of finishing it and getting it finished and doing all that kind of stuff, where is all that clutter? In that room, all right? And uh, the only reason that room that you saw that is all cluttered is in the condition that it is, is because of what? The transition. That room uh, exists as it is in a temporary state that will probably never happen again once the upstairs is finished. And she's shaking her head correct. That will never happen again. Once the transition is over, the room will look like the room you're staying in, never to go back to its cluttered state. I would feel it's safe to say that all of us have experienced life transitions like that, right? Life events that cause things in our lives to be different for a little while, but will eventually disappear, never to return again. That is how we must view the book of Acts. Acts is a historical book that records the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from Judaism to Christianity, from the law to freedom in Christ. It is not a book that we would develop our theology from or foundational doctrinal teachings because it's a book of transition. Yes, there are theological principles in the book of Acts that are timeless, there are doctrinal teachings in the book of Acts that are also timeless, and, uh, but we would never develop and as a foundation any of our teachings or our doctrines from the book of Acts because it is what? Transition. Just like you should not have devel uh, developed any type of opinion about my wife's housekeeping because of one messy cluttered room. You would be wrong. All right? You would be using the wrong standard you would be because it is in transition. And that's how we must view the book of Acts. There are things in the book of Acts that were never meant to be a normal part of church life because Acts is a transitional book. Things like we find in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, cloven tongues of fire, sounds of rushing wind without the wind, and speaking in tongues. 
Things like men being able to heal who have been blind or lame from birth or men being able to raise people from the dead. These were all part of Acts because Acts records a major transition in how God is going to relate to mankind. Why did these things happen in Acts? Because those God had chose to lead this transition needed to be able to do supernatural things to prove they were speaking on God's behalf. They needed others to see that the transition they were part of came from God and was not of their own doing. It was not of their own mind. They needed to see uh, others to see the transition was nothing more than from God. Once the transition was complete, the supernatural events that were needed to validate the transition were no longer needed and are not part of the normal church life that we have today. Seeing Acts as a transitional book really helps us interpret it wisely. So how does the command for us to be witnesses for Jesus Christ fit into the transitional nature of Acts? We've been talking about this for weeks, that our primary purpose for existence, the reason why we live, the reason why we breathe, is to be witnesses for Christ. The reason why we exist okay, as a church in Sardis is so that we can grow and become witnesses for Christ out there. We find that in Acts 1.8. We've seen that a hundred times. So how does this command for us to be a witness for Jesus Christ fit into the transitional nature of Acts? We are to give witness to the wonderful result of the transition. We are to give witness to the wonderful result of the transition that we see in Acts. The good news of Jesus Christ. We are to give witness of the salvation that can only come to us because of the transitional transition from being slaves to the law to being free in Christ. That's what we're to be witnesses for. We are being witnesses that the transition has taken place. The transition now uh, has changed the way God relates to the world. We have been set free from, in Christ from our sin because of His faithful work on the cross, and therefore we are no longer under the law. Why did I go through all of this? Because it helps us understand the last part of chapter 18, which is our passage this morning. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 18 in, uh, in your Bibles. Uh, and in the Red Pew Bible, you will find, you were supposed to find, you will find uh, Acts 18. What page is that on for somebody who has it? 1179. So before we go any further, I want to remind you of the context that is happening just before Acts 18. And that there is remembering the context. As we've seen over the last few weeks, Paul in his first and second missionary journeys, uh, he had a very difficult life in those two missionary journeys. He was chased out of cities, beaten, put into prison, and almost stoned to death. He had experienced grueling travel while recovering from his beatings, and at the end of his second mission journey, he was alone. He was tired. And we must not forget that Paul was a remarkable man, and God was with him as he endured these great trials, but he was also human. The strain of his journeys would have weakened him like any other man, but God was gracious. At the end of the second missionary journey, Paul found himself alone in the city of Corinth, a very, very pagan, immoral city. And that's where we ended last week. He needed to support himself while in, in Corinth because he didn't have the funds uh, that he normally would have had. And God led him to a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla, 
who had, been in, had had a tent-making business uh, in Corinth. And Paul, had, that was his trade. That was what he had been trained in before he became a Pharisee. Uh, he was a tent-maker, so he went and worked for them. We also uh, see that uh, these two people uh, were Christ followers. We understand that. They had been chased out of Rome. Uh, they were uh, more than likely members of or had heard about Christ from the church in Rome. They did provide Paul uh, with a job and also much-needed com- Christian companionship, which we all need, amen? We need Christian companionship. God continued to bless Paul in that two more of his close friends, Silas and Timothy, uh, eventually showed up uh, in Corinth with a gift from the church of Philippi, uh, the Macedonian church, that allowed Paul to stop working for Priscilla and Aquila and go back into uh, doing his apostle minis- apostleship ministry full-time. We looked at that, like I said, all last week. You can see that on our, uh, if you want to listen to more things about that, you can uh, look at our podcast, uh, Sardis Sermons, and it's on all the major podcast sites. We also see that God, last week, that God blessed the ministry of Paul in Corinth. There were many salvation in this, salvations in this extremely pagan city, and even in the synagogue, we see uh, synagogue leaders coming to Christ. And those people uh, formed the core of what we know of as the, of the Corinthian church that Paul eventually writes two more letters to back uh, further down in history. The Jews were not happy with this. They were livid uh, so, uh, that so many had followed Paul and God, uh, and, uh, followed Paul, and God protected Paul from their attempt to persuade the courts to stop Paul's ministry. Does that sound familiar today? <laughs> you had secular folks, pagan folks, bringing uh, Paul to court, uh, trying to get the proconsul to do what? Rule against Christianity, um, and the proconsul threw him out. God protected him. So... After many, many long months of travel during his two missionary journeys, Paul was able to stay in Corinth for over 18 months. He was comforted by friends, had a chance to recover from uh, his uh, previous journeys, and saw God save lost souls. Do you think that was an encouraging time for Paul, that 18 months there? Absolutely. Now we come to our passage this morning. In our passage, we find people uh, who are part of the transition of Acts this transitional idea that we see throughout Acts. It seems as if Luke, the writer of Acts, wants us to understand that transition, um, that the transition one makes from being under sin to being free in Christ is a journey and very personal. It's not something that somebody is going to do overnight. And he does this by drawing our attention to three separate instances of of transition, three different people, three different, uh, uh, that are, uh, or a group of people that are going to, through transitions, and God is, uh, through Luke, is going to help us see what that looks like. The first person in the transition that we see here, uh, people that were in transition, is Paul himself. Let's look at verses 18 through 23 of chapter 18. Acts 18, verses 18 through 23. After this, Paul stayed, this is after the, the court case, many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and sailed, set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he, had cut, he uh, had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And when they came to Ephesus, and, left, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave uh, of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. 
And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia uh, and Phrygia and strengthening all the disciples. So what we have here is it was now time for Paul to leave and head back to Antioch to give another report. It was, he was going to end his second missionary journey. And Paul took Aquila and Priscilla with him and uh, more than likely left uh, Silas and Timothy in Corinth to uh, help that the new church continue to grow. And they would eventually leave and meet him up with him later on. Okay, And at the end of verse 18, we find a, a very interesting statement about Paul. Look at the end of verse 18. At Chantria, he, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. He was under a vow. So what in the world does this mean? That Paul was under a vow that he had to have his hair cut as he left and went through Centria. Well, there's only one vow in Judaism that has anything to do with hair. It was a Nazarite vow. And for that, I want us to turn to Numbers chapter 6. We're going to look at that here for just a minute. Numbers chapter 6, this is... Uh, part of the law, uh, and you can turn there with me, Numbers chapter 6, which helps us understand what a Nazarite vow was, because it's very important for us to uh, see how this impacted Paul and his travels over the next few verses. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, a vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of the grapes, or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his uh, vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is complete for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. And so we're not going to read that. He, uh, again, it's just that idea of separation. Okay, uh, go drop down to verse 13. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, uh, and he shall bring the gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and uh, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings." And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. Verse 17. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread. And the priest shall offer also the grain offering and his drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So anybody we find out here that was going to take... um, a Nazarite vow, we see very, very specific directions on how they were supposed to do that. Uh, they were supposed to, uh, the Nazarite vow, okay, uh, is a, a vow where they are saying, I'm going to separate myself to God for a length of time, all right? And this separation was 
an extreme separation. We have to understand something. Uh, This separation was all of man's will. Because who was not there to help him? The Holy Spirit. We had the Holy Spirit. They did not at this time. So this was a, a conscious choice to say, I am setting myself off to the side for God and only for God, okay, for a specific time. The people who were doing this were required to let their hair grow long. And the reason for this was so that not only were they reminded every time they saw themselves or, or, or uh, you know, had to swish their hair or whatever the case, they would constantly be reminded what? I'm under a vow. Everybody who saw them understood what? They were under a vow. They would be there to help him or her. This also applied to women. Okay? And this, this would, this would uh, help them understand and the people around them that they were consecrated to the Lord. Apparently, Paul had taken a Nazarite vow sometime before he left uh, Corinth. And the time for that vow was now uh, over at the end of verse 18. He had entered Centria, okay, uh, his vow was over, and he starts looking for a barber. Okay, he needed to have his haircut because his time of vow, his time was over. We are not sure why he took the vow, but we understand as you go back and read some more in the Old Testament, okay, uh, uh, this vow was often taken when someone felt especially blessed by God. So to give thanks for this tremendous blessing, they would let set themselves aside to the Lord for a period of time through a Nazarite vow. They were so thankful because of how God had worked in their life in a specific instance, a Nazarite vow was uh, often taken just to tell God, I thank you for what you've done for me. All right? Um, Some uh, believe this is why Paul had taken the vow. God had blessed him so much in Corinth. Companionship, money, great ministry, a new church, rest, healing, and he wanted to thank God and choose to do it through a Nazarite vow because that is what Jews did. So, Paul in Centria cuts his hair because the time of a vow had come to end. But according to the law, the vow uh, was not over until his hair was presented at the temple in Jerusalem. The vow would have been null and void if his hair had not been taken to Jerusalem and burnt uh, as, a, as an offering. This requirement of the law caused Paul to make his way to Jerusalem. And so what I want you to do is we're going to look at this from a couple of different points of view today. We're going to look at Paul now traveling. And Paul does some really odd things in this portion of his travels. Look at verses 19 through 23. Chapter 18, verses 19 through 23. And they came to Ephesus. So he uh, has uh, had his hair cut. What do you think he's carrying with him? Hair. His hair. Because if he hadn't, his Nazarite vow of thanks to God would have been what? Null and void. All right? And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Was that Paul's normal uh, uh, mode of operation when he went in? Yeah. Uh, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Okay, think about this. <laughs> Paul, on his first and second missionary journeys, was constantly chased out of what? He was constantly being chased out of cities, correct? He wanted to stay, but they wouldn't let him. And now we have Paul, okay, a church, people asking him to stay, but what's he going to do? He's going to leave. And you ask, well, why would he leave? Every time he else, he's been asked to stay other places, he stayed. Why is he leaving here? Okay, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. 
Now, again, we have to understand something. Paul, for some reason, is on a mission here. He is going somewhere. We're not quite sure yet in the text, but we know that he is not going to stay in Ephesus. But what does he tell the Ephesians? I will come back. And we get something here that I just want to point out. He says, I'll come back if what? God wills. How many of you, how many of us make plans every day and we never think of that phrase, if God wills? We're not talking just about travel here. I'm going to uh, buy a car. I'm going to have a house. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to, whatever it is, no matter how small it is, when we make a decision, whether we state it or not, what should be in the back of our minds? If God wills. And it's not a bad thing to practice saying that once in a while because it reminds us that our lives and our days, day in and day out, are according to whose will? God's will. All right? And he set sail from Ephesus, verse 22. And he landed in Caesarea, and he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. All right, so what we see here uh, in verse 22 is he went up to a church. The question is, what church? Because it doesn't say. He says, when he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Well, we know what church it is because of the prepositions. There's only one city throughout the Bible that anybody goes up to and down from. There's only one city in the world that people that is described in the Bible as somebody going up to and down from. What city was that? Jerusalem. Now we start seeing the picture, Phil. Why does Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Because he had a vow to complete. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. And what's really weird about this, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, if you want to do it on the internet later on, it says he went up, okay, to the church. The problem with that is, Okay, and not a problem, but it's just odd. If you look at where uh, Centria is and where Jerusalem is, it's actually down. And then it says he went down from Jerusalem because he's getting ready to leave Jerusalem. All right, and actually, if you see looking down, he's going to head to Antioch. And where is that? Up. It's not because Paul is going crazy. It's because we understand Paul left from Centria to go to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is situated on a high hill overlooks everything, and it's quite the hill, all right? And so when they go up, okay, to Jerusalem, when they go down, they're referring to the city of Jerusalem. So we know that Paul left Centria and went to Jerusalem, and we also understand he was doing this more than likely to fulfill his vow, okay? And once his vow was complete, he left Jerusalem and went down and headed back to his home church in Antioch, where what was he going to do? Give a report of what? his second missionary journey. And it wouldn't be long before he, after he was there that he was going to do what? Leave on his third missionary journey. All of this idea, this idea of taking a vow, this idea of having his hair cut, his idea of making sure that he went to Jerusalem, that was a, quite a trip. That was quite a bit out of his way to go to Jerusalem to offer uh, the sacrifice of his hair, all right, and go through all of that. It was really odd, all right, for Paul to do this because all of that is under what? the law. Isn't that, isn't that curious? Paul, uh, uh, Paul uh, was so clear in his teachings that the whole law had been done away with. For him to take a Nazarite vow was really odd because that's part of the law. Why would Paul, when he says the law has been done away with, submit himself to the law again? 
he didn't sin in taking the vow, but it does, it does seem, like I said, odd that Paul would choose to take a vow that was part of the law when he knew the law was dead. This is where the idea that Paul was still in transition comes from. We know from our study in Acts and from Paul's own writings in Galatians and Philippians that there was uh, no one more zealous uh, for the law before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. In fact, take a look at uh, what we see in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For you have heard, this is Paul writing, okay, of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advocating in Judaism beyond many, uh, advancing in Judaism, excuse me, on many of my own age, among my people, so extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. How much was Paul involved in Judaism? How much was it part of his life? He had grown up in it. It was all that he knew. His whole life had been dedicated to, uh, to that. And if you want to, uh, Paul was saved by faith in Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, and that was an instantaneous event. But it would have taken time, even for Paul, to have the transition completely out of the old into the new. You see, Paul was a Jew, saved, a saved Jew, yes, but still a Jew. He still had thought patterns of a Jew. And when he wanted to show his extreme thanks for what God had done for him in Corinth, he defaulted back to his Jewish pattern of thinking. The Nazarite vow was the most extreme way he knew of to thank God, and he reverted back to something that he was familiar with so he could say what? Thank you, Lord, for what you did for me in Corinth. We find evidence that Paul transitioned more and more out of Judaism, uh, that this uh, line of thought is not uh, just uh, something that... uh, theologians think about, uh, we, have to, uh, we see evidence that Paul did change over time as he released more and more of his Judaism and became more and more uh, uh, being able to understand who he was in Christ. All right, uh, We find when Paul took the vow, it was in, uh, about 52 AD. All right, And uh, eight years later, he wrote the book of Philippians. And what I want to do is I want everybody to read, uh, read Philippians with me. Uh, you can see it on page 1249. Go to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. And notice the tone here. This is eight years after he took the vow in that time frame. All right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. He's uh, talking about... Uh, He's defending his apostleship here and starting in verse 5 and actually starting in, uh, let's start in verse 4. In verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, he did because of his zealousness. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What's he saying? There was nobody that surpassed me in Judaism, okay? As to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, I followed every nook and cranny and little uh, law that, could, that the Pharisees uh, had written. But look at verse 7. But whatever I gain, I had counted for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Okay, remember, righteousness of his own. That's what he did as a Pharisee that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
In other words, what Paul is saying here is, those things that made up my life, I let them go for Jesus Christ. I'm no longer interested in rituals. I'm no longer interested in ceremonies. I am interested in Christ and Christ alone. And basically what we see as he has matured and as he has transitioned more and more out of that, uh, that influence of Judaism, we see that Paul, okay, uh, no longer would need ceremony, would no longer would need things like a Nazarite vow to thank God. How would he thank God without Judaism? How would he? How would he thank God in the same way that he would have as from a Nazarite vow in Judaism? Pray. Was there any need for ceremony or ritual anymore? Who indwelled him now? The Holy Spirit. Who interprets our prayers for us and understands the thankfulness of our hearts, even when words can't describe it? There was no more, and Paul understood, there's no, no more need for ceremony and ritual. There's no need. I have completely laid all the law aside now in Philippians. I have uh, come to the point in time where all I need is Christ. And if Paul ever came to a place where he needed to thank God again, which you see throughout his, his uh, epistles, how thankful is Paul all the time? And he is constantly praying and telling God, thank you but without a Nazarite vow because he had transitioned. So let me ask you a question. So what? So what? Why go into detail about Paul's transition further away from Judaism? If we didn't spend some time gaining more understanding what Luke was recording here, we would miss out on some great encouragement for our own lives. First, okay, the first encouragement we see is transition is normal. Amen? How many of you here transitioned from what you were as a sinner to something different as a Christ follower? Okay? Now understand something. When we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, were we immediately saved? Yes. Can anybody take that salvation away from us? Absolutely not. Okay? But does that immediate salvation, okay, Take all the bad habits away. Take all the, 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 the sin that we've lived in and lived around. Does that automatically take it all away? Or do we still have things and habits in our lives that over time as we transition more and more from being uh, lost and condemned in sin to being alive and present with Christ? Amen? We all have transitions when you are saved, it doesn't mean your life suddenly loses all the bad habits. It doesn't mean you walk the walk of a Christ follower perfectly from time, the time you were saved. In fact, I enjoyed one pastor's comment on this. I, I chuckled every time I read it. It says, you take a person with a rotten temper and a stinking disposition and get him saved. And then what you've got is a Christian with a rotten temper and a stinking disposition. Because not all that stuff disappears overnight, correct? There's a transition for all of us. Over time, sometimes a short time, sometimes a long time, that person changes, transitions more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we all go through that. And if the Apostle Paul, I find this extremely encouraging because the Apostle Paul himself did what? Needed to do what? Transition. Paul was not going to just jump out of Judaism and let all that behind. He had years that he was going to have to work through all of that and transition from being under the law to being free, set free from the law. And this is an example we see of this here. He didn't sin when he took the Nazarite vow. But he was just, that was what 
Jews did. And by the time we get to Philippians, we understand that Paul didn't need that anymore. It's not what Jews do. It's not what saved Jews do anymore. They're not under the law. This process is called sanctification. It means that Christ followers become more and more separated unto God. Um, they become more holy into the Lord. And there's two parts to this sanctification. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Okay. Uh, it says this. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the, uh, who is the Spirit. The idea here is we are being transformed in, into the uh, glory of God by whose work. It says there, okay, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Who's doing the transforming, this, this sanctification? He, he set us aside in our salvation, but we are being transformed on a daily basis through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, become more and more like Christ. But that's only one part of it. The other part we find in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and you'll find that in your pew Bibles on page 1,253. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. This is the idea he's, uh, Paul is writing here about putting on the new self. Remember, we become new creatures in Christ once we are saved. And, uh, but in verse 5, here's the second part. It's our responsibility. And he says, put to death. Who is doing the putting to death, the Holy Spirit or us? Us, okay? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, of, uh, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two uh, once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. You must put them away. All, uh, all of them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and unseemed talk from your mouth. And he goes on. The idea is uh, this, there's a second part of this, um, of this uh, progressive sanctification, this idea that we're being set apart and transitioning. God helps us with the Holy Spirit to, to do it, but who else has a part in it? We do. We have to lay it aside. And this is something that we all need to grasp. We need to grasp this because it is not always clear today in our churches. If you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are going to transition. Period. There is no such thing as remaining the same. The Holy Spirit's not going to let you sit and just remain the same. And we have commands about us putting off the old and putting on the new. We have a, we have a, a, a responsibility. If, how many of us often just get really, really upset when it seems like I'm just fighting and fighting and fighting and it never seems to ever go away all the way. Amen? About sin in our lives and stuff. I mean, uh, that's part of the fight. If you don't find yourself fighting all the time in this transition period, if you don't find your heart convicting you when you sin or when you don't obey uh, what God wants you to do, okay, then you have to ask the question, why? Because if you're transitioning, it's always going to be there. There's going to be this tension of wanting to be like Christ, transitioning towards Christ, and still wanting to be what? Living in the flesh. And what we see here in, in Paul uh, is, is this encouragement, all right, that everybody is in transition. 
and this idea that we, uh, God has a part, and He does when we gain, uh, gain the Holy Spirit, and also that we have a part. And I, again, like I said, I find this so encouraging because sometimes I get discouraged when I think, see things in my life that are not Christ-like. Sometimes I don't want to get up here and preach. Sometimes I don't want to uh, teach on, on Wednesday night because I know that I was doing something or I'm struggling with sin in my life and I'm going, how can I stand up in front of everybody and teach and preach the Word of God that is true when I'm not living it? You know, this brings me my comfort because Paul transitioned, I'm transitioning, and God uses those times to grow me. Amen. The second is this idea of Christian separation. Christian separation. I believe that Paul grew in his understanding of this, uh, of this as part of his transition from Judaism to being a, a Christ follower. Later on, and uh, we have in 2 Corinthians, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what, partnership has, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has, has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. This idea here, Paul is uh, talking about us being a temple of the living God. You see, the Nazarite vow, like I said, was a human endeavor, a human effort. And that separation to God was what? By nature. Temporary, right? There were only like three people in the whole entire uh, Bible that were ever separated uh, as a Nazarite uh, under a Nazarite vow for their whole lives. The rest of it was all temporary. Why? Is there any way that a person could be uh, totally for life without the help of God be separated to God? No. So the Nazarite vow uh, uh, was designed for special occasions when people were moved, uh, usually with about th something thankful for God, okay? And they did it for 30, 60, 100 days, 120 days, whatever God led them to do, all right? And they would do that for a temporary time. But now we come over here, the transition from the law to transition to being in Christ. Is it, is it possible for us to become more and more separate from the world in a way that they could not have? Yes. Why? We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the, indwelling, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And what we see here is I think that Paul... Uh, began to understand this more and more uh, because he, he understood that, and as he's writing here, Christ followers, we are separate to God for how long after salvation? Forever, for the rest of our entire lives, amen? Let me ask you, how's your separation? Do you look at your life day in and day out of being separated to God? You're not living for yourself, you're not living for your business, you're not living for your family or your hobbies. You are living for Christ each and every day because God has set you apart. He's given you the Holy Spirit and you have a and as you work with the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit works in you, you are becoming more and more like Christ and you are transitioning and it's something that never stops. You're separated to God for your entire life. And you want to know something? 
that is so encouraging for me because I don't have to do this by myself. I have the Holy Spirit. And I think Paul began to understand this more and more. We also see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transferred, uh, transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, that transition is what? That whole idea there is a constant, it's ongoing, and who's doing the transitioning? The Holy Spirit. This passage is looking back at Moses. This passage in 2 Corinthians. You see, Moses came in before God and he came down from the mountain. What was his face like? Remember? They had to, he had to cover his face because he had the Shekinah glory on his face. Did it stay there for the rest of his life? No, it disappeared. But you want to know something? It's not the case for us. We have the glory of the God living in us day in and day out in the Holy Spirit. And so what we need to understand here is Paul, and we're notice for, the, for those of you who uh, really struggle with notes that have blanks left on them, okay, we're done for today. This ended up being longer than I expected because we had to go back to the background and we will continue in a couple of weeks this, this, this idea of being transitioned. But the idea that we are transitioning, the idea that Luke wants us to say is he's going to go now talk about Apollos. He's going to talk about 12 uh, of John the Baptist's disciples and how they were uh, transitioned by God and how their lives were transitioned from uh, being what they were to into something new. And that's what I want us to leave here today with. Let me ask you something. How's your life transitioning? Paul had to transition. Paul had to grow. We're going to find out that Apollos had, had to transition and grow. We're going to find out that the 12 disciples of John the Baptist had to transition and grow. Because it's really weird how chapter 18 is. We're talking about Paul's travels and what he's doing in Corinth. And all of a sudden, it's like these, that last part is just chopped out. He's going to talk about three different sets here of people uh, and, and their transitions in life. And then he goes right back into the third missionary journey. And, and the, the only thing I can, just through my reading and my study, is that Luke wants us to understand transition is part of life, and all of us as Christ followers are going to transition to become more and more like Christ. So as we close, bow your heads for just a minute. I'm going to ask you the question again. A little bit different way. What specific, specifically, what things in your life prove to you that God is transitioning your life from what you were into what He is making you? What, what specific things? Are you more in His Word? Are you making decisions with the thought in your background of how does this bring glory to God? Are you loving the, the body of Christ more and more and you want to spend time more and more with the body of Christ? Or are you just willing to just live your life and come on Sunday mornings?
You see, if we're transitioning, we're going to love each other more and more. If we're transitioning, we're going to love Christ more and more. If we're transitioning, we're going to be like Paul, and everything that we've gained, everything that we have accomplished on earth is going to start fading into the background because we are transitioning to be heavenly-minded and not earthly-minded. How is your transition going? What proof of your transition do you have in your life? Father God, there are people here who are answering that question in two different ways. Some are encouraged. Some are saying, thank you, Lord, because I see my life changing. I see my attitudes and my wants and my desires changing to be more Christ-like. Thank you, Lord, because I am less worried about this earth and more focused on my eternal home and glory. Oh, Father, thank you for the encouragement that these people have this morning. And Father, I pray that you would help them continue their transition, a transition that will continue until the day they see Christ. I pray, Lord God, that they would become more and more like Christ and that they would become tremendous witnesses outside this door, outside these doors of this church. Tremendous witnesses as their speech and their transitioning life speak of the glories of Jesus Christ and salvation through Him. Father, there are others who are saying, I, I really don't have any proof of transition. I don't have any... Uh, I can't see over the last number of years where really much of anything is happening uh, in my life uh, spiritually or um, uh, biblically. Father, there's going to be discouragement there. There's going to be wonder there. There's going to be maybe even some fear there. Father, I pray that you would help them see that that can change right now today. That can change, Lord God, through confession if they're already Christians and they can uh, understand that they have a part uh, in, in, in their transition. And Father, maybe Satan has just got in their way. Maybe their own uh, hearts and sinful desires have gotten in their way. And Lord God, we praise your name that that can change with just confession. And Father, there are others here who uh, that can, uh, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They, they're not saved, Lord God. They have no desire. They have no push. They, have, uh, they really don't really care about you much of it at all. Father, I pray that you would open their hearts and open their eyes to see who Jesus Christ is. I pray that people who are here sitting next to them would be great witnesses for them as they speak and as they um, uh, take joy in becoming more and more like Christ. And Father, as we close today, I pray that as we walk out this door, Lord God, that we would be tre uh, just tremendous witnesses of the fact that Jesus Christ came, changed what the world was through His death on the cross. I pray, Lord God, that that would be why we breathe each and every day. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.